Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of, the God, Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Good morning. There are two types of announcements that you tend to never forget that seem to kind of permanently etch themselves onto your memory. One of those is the announcement of a death of a loved one. I heard a coroner around here say once that when you're a coroner and you show up at someone's house and you knock on the door to let them know that someone they, they know and love has, has died, they're never going to forget that moment. So for you, you're a coroner, it's your job, it's another day, but for them, they're never going to forget you. They're never going to forget that moment. The other kind of announcement I think you tend not to forget is a, kind of, is a birth announcement. Those of you who are parents, I would guess you can probably remember, especially with your first child, where and when you were when you found out you were going to be a parent. And if you're anything like me, in a flash, in an instant, your mind and your body was, was flooded with emotion and thought. So excitement, but also some fear, some questions, how, am I, how is this all going to play out, doubts, am I up for this role as a parent? I asked Christiana the other day if she remembers my reaction when I found out I was going to be a, a, a father, and she remembers something like panic. <laughs> I, and I only, know, I only know what this is like as a dad. I'm, I don't know what it's like to carry a child. I don't know what it's like to birth a child. If, and some of you are thinking in this series on Mary, it's about time we get a female perspective on this. Don't worry, next week, okay? You're going to get a female perspective. So... I'll do my best as, as a male here, though. But there's so many unknowns that come with a birth announcement. I think the one thing you know for sure is your life is never going to be the same. And even amidst a, a stable marriage with ample financial resources, good physical health, you know, family members that are eager to help, finding out you're going to be a parent is a lot to take in. Last week, we're moving through this announcement from Gabriel. Last week, we, we saw Mary was troubled. She has some idea that there's some really big announcement that's going to come from Gabriel and that she is going to have a central role in this announcement. But so we, found, we saw her troubled but thinking. She's listening. She's open to what's coming. If there's one thing that Mary is not expecting to hear, it's that she's going to be a mother. There's plenty of examples of unexpected birth announcements in the Bible to women who were, for example, too old to have a child, to women who have not been able to have a child, but Mary is none of these. Okay? Mary's not old. 
She's not barren. She's not even trying to have a child. In fact, at this stage of her marriage, biologically speaking, it shouldn't be possible for her to have a child. So whatever Mary thought was coming from Gabriel, it wasn't this. It wasn't that she was about to become a mother. She learns not only that she will be a mother, she learns the, the name of her son. It will be Jesus. Uh, she finds out uh, some of the, the future predictions about what will happen. He will, he will be great. He will sit on the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants, so Israel forever. This is the long-awaited Messiah King. This is the one that Mary and her people have long been waiting for. And she also finds out that this conception will be unlike any other conception in history. That this boy Jesus will be conceived by the very Spirit of God. Now that is a lot to take in. And I wonder, I kind of wonder as I was reflecting on Mary, I was like, I wonder what flashed in Mary's mind right now. Surely excitement, I would guess. But also probably a an enormous amount of fear and uncertainty and doubt because there's, of course, a problem here. Mary, as we talked about last week, is betrothed to Joseph. We talked about that. means she's legally married to him, but the marriage has not been consummated. She's in this, if we talked about this two stages of the process of a marriage, she's in between stage one and stage two, meaning Mary is not supposed to be pregnant. So think back for a second on those of you who are older, think about growing up when a teenage girl finds out she's pregnant and she's not supposed to be pregnant. You know, especially in a small rural town, okay? There's, there's social shame. There's often ostracism. You know, it wasn't unheard of for the man who had, uh, was the father of that child to just kind of disappear then and leaving the young woman to raise and support that child by herself. So not by any means easy for a teenage mom then, not easy now. In Mary's world, it's even worse. Because in Mary's world, at this point now, she becomes a suspected adulteress. Like, we know that's not what's happened, but that sure is what looks like has happened. And according to the law that governed Mary's society, the Torah, as stated in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, the punishment for adultery, this would be considered adultery, would have been death by stoning. According to Scott McKnight, uh, Probably by the first century, by Mary's day, what would have happened is that Mary would have been dragged down to Jerusalem, uh, and she would have been brought in front of a court, and they would have seen if they could have extracted a confession out of her. But if the suspected adulteress maintained her innocence, and McKnight says in this case she thinks Mary would have, then the woman would have been taken to a conspicuous location, such as a gate leading to the temple courtyard, for public humiliation. This would have included ripping the woman's clothes just enough to expose a breast. Her hair would have been let down, all her jewelry removed. And the people passing by her would be encouraged to stare at this publicly shamed woman in order to make an object lesson out of her. See, I think you and I, when we, when we hear this announcement, rightfully so, we feel the joy. We should. This is an incredibly joyful announcement. And as I said, I'm sure Mary felt some joy, but I don't think we feel the fear and the uncertainty of this announcement. Because we know how the story ends, right? We know where this story's going. But Mary doesn't know where this story's going. Because Mary's at the beginning of the story. See, see, Mary has given a beginning to this story, the beginning of the story of her son Jesus. And in many ways, she's given an end. This is where it ends up. He's on the throne. But Gabriel doesn't sketch out what's in between. 
Mary responds with these words, I am the Lord's servant. More literally, uh, Mary is saying, I'm the Lord's slave. And we saw this language, we're back in our series on Philippians, we saw this language because that's the same language that Paul opens up. The word uh, here in Greek is doule, which often is translated servant, but would be liter- more literally slave. And there's some understand. I talked about this a little bit in Philippians, even more so here probably. There's some concerns about using the, that language of slavery with a woman. In the past, Mary's slavery to the Lord has been taken by some to mean subjugation of women in general to men. But as Beverly Gaventa points out, a highly respected New Testament scholar says, this is a misinterpretation of the text. Gaventa points out that the title slave of the Lord indicates the authority of God in human salvation and says nothing about the authority of men and women in relation to one another. He says, quite the contrary. If Mary is God's slave, she cannot at the same time be a slave of human beings. And notice, though, notice that Mary chooses this title. Gabriel doesn't say anything about this. Mary seems to own this title. She takes on this title. And, and what Mary is doing, in, in a sense, really, is what all disciples of Jesus are called to do, even if we avoid that kind of language. When we choose to follow Jesus, we choose to surrender our lives to Jesus. We give up claims to our life. We give up freedom. In this way, I think it reminded me a bit of like having a child. Like when I became a dad, I don't think I had any idea how much this child was going to disrupt and make a claim on my life and my freedom. How much that this child and now these children would would reshape the purpose of my life. If you're a female, you know this, uh, this child even makes a bigger claim on you, right? Because this child is now claiming the, the physical space of your womb. This child will claim the milk that's produced by your body. And when this child enters the world for the mother and the father, then it's even more of a surrender of freedom. You will surrender, for example, when you want to sleep and when you are able to sleep. As a, as a parent, you will surrender a lot of your money to that child. You will surrender a lot of your energy and time to that child. In other words, having a child is extremely costly. But of course, I think those of us who are parents know on a good day when you've had enough sleep, you're in a good place, you realize, I have given up this freedom gladly. I've given up these rights I once had with joy and gratitude because they serve the purpose of nurturing and raising this child. Being parents, I think one of the things it teaches you is to value purposes beyond our own purposes. And Mary, of course, takes all that on as a mother, but she, she takes it a step farther. When she states this title, slave of the Lord, Mary is saying, I'm not just giving my life up and my freedoms to this child. I'm giving my rights and my freedoms up to God. My life is no longer about me. My life is no longer about my purposes. My life is now about the purposes of God. And in doing so, Mary is going to give up a lot. According to Fulton Sheen, Mary gives to God the only perfect gift that we can make to God. He writes this. Listen to this quote. Our free will is the only thing that is really our own. Our health, our wealth, our power, All these God can take from us, but our freedom he leaves to us because freedom is our own. It is the only perfect gift that we can make to God. Think about this. This is a great mystery. How does this work when the God who created the cosmos, the God who made everything and we profess controls everything, chooses to give us free will? That this God values us enough, that this God has enough gives us enough dignity that that God who controls everything gives us the control of our freedom. 
How does that work? Well, what does Mary do with that freedom? Mary hands it over to the Lord. Mary, Mary takes the only perfect gift that we have and she gives it to God. It might be a perfect gift, but let's be honest, it's a scary gift when we hand over our freedom to God. Why is it scary? Well, think about it. What if the purposes of, that I want for my life do not match up with the purposes that God has for my life? What if God wants to do with my life what I really don't want to do with my life? What if being a disciple limits my freedom from what I want to do? See, I think if there's anything we're allergic to in our culture, it's constraints. We are people, as a whole, who are obsessed with freedom. We are obsessed with freedom to do what we want when we want. And we do not like it when people tell us what to do. Here's what I think we often miss, though. Here's how I think we delude ourselves. If we do not, as disciples, hand over our freedom to a good and loving God, we will hand our freedom over to something. Something will take charge of our lives. Something will shape the purposes of our life. As Edwards Free writes, left to our own navigation, we tend to make decisions based on a limited vision of life. We pursue fallen, disordered desires. We are enslaved by a hundred fears, insecurities, and weaknesses. You see what he's saying here? When we get to steer the ship, when we're the master of our fate and the captain of our souls, we think we're free, but in reality, we just end up sailing that ship to all these things that end up enslaving us. Time and time again, if you, if you sit back and reflect, once you throw off constraints, you just find yourselves in bondage to something else. Okay? Maybe we say, you know, good riddance to constraints around alcohol or drugs only to find ourselves in bondage to addiction. We can say, you know, good riddance to boredom. And we can adopt all the latest technology without putting any kind of intentional thought into what that technology might be doing to us, only to realize we're now addicted to technology, that we no longer can sit five minutes without looking at our phones. We throw off all the restraints and boundaries around sex only to find ourselves in bondage to lust and to pornography. We think we're free, but in reality, something else is controlling us. There was a study done a number of years ago about the effects of putting fences in playgrounds uh, for for preschool children. So in this study, the the, the teacher, uh, it's the same group, same teacher, same group of kids, they go to first playground and there's no fence around the playground, okay? Then they take the children, uh, same teacher, same kids to another playground where there's then a fence and a boundary. And in the first scenario, what they found in the study, when there was no fence, when there was no boundaries, in theory, the kids were free. But what they found out was that in the playground, without a fence, they tended to huddle around the teacher. They were fearful of going out of their teacher's sight, and they didn't end up using all this playground space that was theirs to use. In the second scenario, where there's a fence, where there's a clear boundary, it was completely different. The children ran around, and they felt free to explore. We are nervous to hand over our lives and our freedom to God like Mary because if we're honest with ourselves, there are parts of our lives we do not want to hand over. I think we want Jesus to be Lord of our lives, but not maybe all of our lives. We want Jesus to get us to heaven one day, but we're not sure we 
We trust Jesus to handle our day-to-day lives. I think we think we can handle that better. We want to be free, and so we bristle against the constraints that come with following Jesus. We hold back handing our lives over to Jesus because we think we better we have a better idea what to do. And rather than free, I submit to you that I think we just end up like those kids huddled around the teacher in the playground. We're insecure, we're fearful, we have a small vision of the world and what's possible, and we're paralyzed by the existential burden of trying to figure out how do you craft a life of purpose and meaning from our own wits and from scratch. But not Mary. Mary gets, I believe, what we often miss, that paradoxically, the way to freedom is through constraints. The way to freedom is handing over your freedom to God to make God's purposes her purposes. See, the thing you you have to realize is Mary is not just saying no to herself. She is saying yes to God. Because right after this, she says, I am the Lord's slave. She says, may your word to me be fulfilled. I think often we've heard this line. I think this is a familiar line. May your word to me be fulfilled. And I think we think of Mary kind of passively submitting herself to God's purposes. So whether Mary wants to or not, she's kind of humbly resigned to this role and this vocation that she now has. But it, really in the last couple of decades, some scholars have done some good work with this. They've pointed out that the mood here in Greek is not a passive acceptance of God's will, but an active, loving embrace. One, guy, one scholar translated this. If at all possible, let it be. In other words, Gabriel is saying, hey, behold, Gabriel, listen, Gabriel. I understand what you just said to me, and the answer is yes, I'm in. I want that. If at all possible, what you just told me, Gabriel, let it be. Notice Notice that there's a difference here. That's submission, but that's a joyful submission. This is a joyful submission. Also notice, this is a courageous submission. There's nothing meek and mild about this submission. Why? Because remember what Mary's saying yes to. One, she's saying yes to a conception that she has no understanding of that's ever happened. There's no precedent for that in Old Testament. She's saying yes to that, this idea that the very Spirit of God will come upon her and overshadow her, and that's the way the child will be conceived. But she's also saying yes to, to moving into this place of being a suspected adulteress. See, Mary is saying yes, but she doesn't even know what she's saying yes to. Mary, see, as I said, Mary gets from Gabriel the beginning of this story. Okay, you're going to conceive and give birth to a son. And Mary gets where the story's heading. Your son will sit on the throne and his kingdom will never end. But guess what? There's this massive gap between the beginning and the end in Gabriel's announcement. There's all kinds of details that, frankly, if I were Mary, I think I'd like to know. Like, hey, Gabriel, what about the fact that I'm going to be a suspected adulteress? That I very well could be dragged down to Jerusalem and humiliated publicly. Can you say more about that? And this son of mine that's going to be king, that's, that's wonderful. What about his childhood? We live in a small town. We live in a village. People are going to wonder. Is he going to get ostracized? Is he going to get picked on? Can you say something about that? And what about Joseph? Like, what's Joseph going to think of this? Is he going to divorce me? Am I going to be financially destitute? There is such a big gap here in Gabriel's announcement. Like either Gabriel is not a details kind of angel or Gabriel is doing exactly what Gabriel's supposed to do. 
Because Mary's getting a story with a beginning and an end, but not a middle. And isn't that what faith is? Isn't that what faith is? Moving out, trusting God, even when we don't get the whole picture. Even when we don't get all the details. Beverly Gaventa again writes this, Mary becomes not a model female, but a model disciple who consents to what is not fully understood. Did you hear that? Mary consents, Mary says yes to what she does not fully understand. You want to wait to follow Jesus until you have everything uh, intellectually worked out in your head and every last question has been answered? You're going to be waiting a long time. You want to wait to fully surrender your life to Jesus Christ until it feels like the right time. You're going to be waiting a long time. Faith is saying, I'm going to say yes, even though I don't have all the details. Even though I'm not given the whole story like Mary. Faith is saying, I, I, I have my doubts, I have my fears, I have my uncertainties. But to be invited to collaborate with Almighty God, if at all possible, let it be be. That's what I want. God has chosen me for a purpose, for a vocation, and Mary's saying, I want to be part of that. I was listening to an interview recently with a guy named Michael Hyatt who does leadership consulting, and you know, mostly for businesses and organizations. This wasn't a religious interview at all, but he's talking about like helping individuals to set goals. And one of the things he was saying, you know, looking ahead to New Year, people set goals. He said, he said, so often we, we make the mistake of not making goals that move us out of our comfort zone. And he says, you know, if, if, if these goals don't pull us, if they don't inspire us, they're just leaving us in the status quo. And he said, okay, how do you know then? Okay, if, if, if I should make a goal that moves me out of my comfort zone, how do I know when I'm out of it? And he says, he, said, he has this acronym FUD. A little bit of he has fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Okay? He says, once you, when you feel the fear and uncertainty and doubt, you know you've moved from a, a space of comfort to a place that's uncomfortable. And he says, that's where great things happen. Think back, think back for a second on your life. Okay? Think about the most significant moments in your life. Think about some of the greatest moments in your life. Think about the most meaningful moments in your life and things that happen. Almost all of them start in the discomfort zone. And you might think, some of you might be thinking, I'm, like, I don't, I'm not like a risk taker, okay? But I, I've heard a lot of your stories. And think about it. When you moved across the country for voluntary service, when you decided to start your own business, when you switched careers later in life, when you met your spouse and decided to get married, when you decided to move across the country for higher education, moved across the world for higher education, when you decided to take care of a parent at home, if you were to go through some of the most significant things in your life, almost inevitably from starting a business to starting a family, they would have started in the discomfort zone. You had FUD. You had fear. Like, this, I don't know if this business is going to make it. You had uncertainty. Like, I don't, I, don't even know if, I don't know if I can do this. And you had doubts. I don't know how this is going to work out. I guarantee Mary is feeling that right now. Fear, uncertainty doubt. And yet, she moves forward in joy. Remember, this series is, what are we learning from Mary on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? And right now, Mary is teaching us, how do we get out of our comfort zone? Because we know, we know that's where great things happen. If you are a businessman or businesswoman, you know, inevitably, if you're going to succeed in business, you're going to take risk. 
Okay? If you are a teacher right now, inevitably you're going to realize that growth in that student of yours is going to happen once they move from the comfort zone to the discomfort zone. If you are a physical therapist, when, what do you want them to do? They are going to move through discomfort to get to the healing. Again and again and again in our careers, we recognize that great things happen in discomfort zones. And yet so often we fail to apply that to our discipleship. We feel like being a disciple of Jesus is supposed to be the place where you're always safe and secure. And that's not it. How can we, all these other areas of our life, we see that great things happen out of, our, in our, out of our comfort zone and yet say discipleship is different. Discipleship is not different and Mary models that for us. When we move out, when we feel, when we, when we sense God's call and we feel some fear and uncertainty and doubt, don't take that as you're on the wrong path. Take it as you're probably on the right path because that's called faith. God wants to work in your life, okay? Each of us has a vocation like Mary. Each of us has work that we're called to do, and God has given us unique gifts to do that work. You know, God has not created us to be Mary. And God is not going to ask you if you were like Mary or if I were like Joseph or Peter. God is going to ask us, were you the you I made you to be? That's what he's going to ask us. So when Mary is called by, gets this message from Gabriel, she moves out into this adventure of faith, and she doesn't get the details, but she does get these words, and we get these words. No word of God will ever fail. No word of God will ever fail. Think of all the words that you've heard in your life that have failed. Maybe from people you respected, from politicians, from the media, from culture, whoever. We hear lots and lots of words that fail. But no word from God will ever fail. We don't get all the details, but we get the ending. We get the ending because on the, at the ending is the Son of God sitting at the throne, reigning over a kingdom that never ends. Thanks be to God.